0: Tonight's Bible reading is from the book of Jude, verses 17 to 23. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Well, good evening, everyone. This evening we chose a a passage from the book of Jude, which is the second last book, Bible. And as one commentator says, sits in the shadow of Revelation. So it is one of those books that gets forgotten from time to time, uh, and I thought it would be encouraging for us to look at this evening. Well, I visited London actually just last month. I was in London, England, uh, around the middle of July, and uh, had. Had a good had a good time there, and obviously a big part of if you've ever been to uh, you know particularly central London is you have to uh, use the tube, their their subway or their uh, their train system. Uh, But I I quickly worked out that going into those uh, subway stations and the the tunnels is a huge uh, labyrinth of different. Tunnels and 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 different parts of the system. You go into one station and then you're in another station, and you and you've really got to be sure on where you're going, and you you're looking at your phone, and it's it, it can get quite confusing. But there, it's a quite an amazing system. But do, doing a bit of reading, I, I've noticed that the and actually my father pointed out to me while I was there in London that the Tube also has quite a bit of history. If we look back to uh, World War Two. Um, the the tube and the, and the subway system and even the tracks were used for people to hide out during the Blitz, which, for those who know your history, was uh, the German bombing of uh, London and different parts of England um, and, and the UK uh, over 1940 and 1941. They would use these tunnels. So I've, I've just got a quote here from the Daily Herald at the time. Every night, London's underground stations are crowded with people seeking shelter. Many of them arrive early in the evening with their bedding, prepared to settle down for a night's sleep on the platforms. So, sleeping in the tube was, was one part or one thing that people did to uh, protect themselves from what was um, uh, overhead. And I, did, I even read an account of people, they would sleep in the tube, even on the tracks overnight... And then uh, they'd wake up in the morning and there they, are, they, there they were at the train station, they'd get their train to work. So it was all very convenient for them. Um, but as I said, the, the sleeping in the tube and using the tube was just one part of what the Londoners did to protect themselves. Um, they also hung blank black curtains over their houses and shops. They did a, a mass exodus of uh, children from London to keep them safe, evacuation. There was an air raid warden service which organised sirens and shelters and there was also a home guard which was a bit of a citizen uh, militia, a bit of a dad's army that, would, that would, would perform a role on the ground. And again, if you know your history, the British spirit uh, remained, um, the war production continued uh, in the UK, they were able to keep fighting the war despite all of the attack um, and, and the rest is history Obviously, the, the Allies uh, won the war. And uh, like London, uh, during the Blitz, uh, the churches written to, in Jude, were also under attack. See, Jude uh, was most likely one of uh, Jesus' brothers, commentators say, was written in the last quarter of the first century. We're not really sure on a date, but there's, there's various um, dates, whether it's 75 or 80 or 90 uh, A.D., And Jude was confronting, and the majority of the book, if you read through the book, is confronting false teachers that had come into the church. Particularly false teachers that were antinomian. Now, antinomian is referring to the fact that they had completely disregarded the law. They believed in some superversion of God's grace and that they didn't have to live a certain way and they could essentially sin and do whatever they like and God's grace um, would cover them. And we know in Romans that Paul particularly addresses that and says that that is not an appropriate theological outlook for a Christian uh, to have because, as we're going to talk about tonight, we need to be obedient. And like the Londoners, these churches that Jude was writing to, though, they could not stay passive. There, There were things that they had to do. Jude called the church to fight for the faith and to contend for the faith. that's what I'm going to be talking about this evening, contending for the faith. Now of course it's clear in scripture, we are saved by grace and not by works. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. But these verses from 17 to 23 in the book of Jude show us that we can't mark time in our faith. We need to keep making progress, we need to keep going. There are practical things to be doing before God takes us home. Sort of like the advice you get when you're caught in a rip. Now I'm no big swimmer, and we're a long way from the beach here in the hills. But I do know if you get caught in a rip, what's the instruction? You keep swim, you keep swimming out. You swim out on an angle, and you keep and you keep going out, um, and that'll eventually get you uh, out of the rip. Obviously, staying in the same place is not a way to get out of a rip. So as we think about the concept of contending for the faith, the text tonight is going to give us three particular ways. That we contend for the faith in the Christian life. Three ways that we contend for the faith in the Christian life. And these lessons that were written to Jude, uh, to the, to the church by Jude are lessons that we can glean as well. Some would know Charles Spurgeon, the great, uh, English preacher. I was able to visit his, uh, church when I was in, in London, which was, a, which was a real highlight. He had a magazine for many years called The Sword and the Trowel. And that fit really well uh, for tonight but I've added one uh, one element as well. Uh, so the unofficial title I guess for tonight was the sword, the trail and the fire and you probably saw the title thinking oh what's that about? Well tonight we're going to be looking at remembering the opponents of the faith, about building ourselves up in the faith and reaching out to those who've left the faith and I hope as we look at the text uh, tonight that those three areas will become clear. So let's look at God's Word Let's look firstly at verses 17 to 19. Jude writes, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. There are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So the first way we see in scripture that we contend for the faith is to remember the opponents of the faith remember the opponents of the faith. You might be asking, what, what does that mean? What, who are the opponents? Well, Jude says that we need to, that they are to remember what the apostles foretold. Remember what the apostles foretold. Now, you might read that and think, oh, well, he's obviously talking about apostles from a long period ago, that people who have died, but in that period when he was writing, uh, Jude was probably writing when other apostles may still have been alive. They had set up churches. Um, so, for example, Peter, and there's lots of uh, you, s- you see lots of cross references between, say, two Peter and Jude. Peter may have been alive, so even though he says, "Remember what the apostles foretold," he could be talking about um, those apostles still alive. And what what are they to remember? Well, Jude writes in a way which is is almost a warn warning. It's it's in, it's in a protective way. It's more than remember in just a casual sense. It's not like, oh, remembering your keys or remembering what your dog's birthday is. It's a deep-seated form of remembering. There's some, um, stone tablets that I've read about in, uh, Japan. And they've been there for over 600 years. And they remind, they're put at different places on the coastline to remember the residents, uh, to, or to remind the residents, uh, not to build in those spots. Because if there is a tsunami, uh, and you know the, the 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 big waves come, their houses will get wiped out. Now, in 2011, a town called Aniyoshi was safe because of these stones, because they knew that they did not build past a certain point. Other towns, and obviously we know if you remember those uh, that tsunami, they had their technology and their high sea walls, but they they were wiped out. Those other towns did not remember. The ancient warnings, these stones that were put in place to, uh, to, to r- remind them and make them remember of the devastation of these big waves. So the readers are given a big, strong exhortation, remember. And what are these churches told to remember? Well, they're to remember that mockers and scoffers will come into the church. They are to expect them. Who are these mockers and scoffers? Well, they're people that come into the church and cause division. They cause factions with the church. They cause splits and they take people away uh, from the church. They're described as following their own natural instincts. They're sensual, debased, carnal. They're animal like. They don't live by the spirit. They live by the flesh. So when we and when we talk about this concept of false teachers, I just I just want to point out we're not talking about people who, uh, teachers or, or pastors or whatever it may be that make mistakes or make errors because we all do that. None of us have 100% perfect uh, theology but these, this is talking about, false teachers are talking about people who genuinely come in and they want to reject God's Word and they want to create havoc and they want to divide people up. And it's amazing, particularly in the New Testament, how much is written about false teachers. I've just got a quick list here, Matthew, 2 Peter, 2 Timothy, Colossians, 2 Corinthians, Revelation... The list goes on. Jesus in Mark 7 says, "Watch out for false prophets. they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And verses 12 to 13, if you just go a little bit back in the text that we're looking at tonight, does some heavy lifting for us and tells us some of the features of heavy, uh, it tells us the, the features of these false teachers. They are clouds without rain, as in they don't deliver on what's promised. He describes them as shooting stars, that's talking about the fact that they're very short-lived and they're wild waves, as in they're wreckers, they're destroying, they're causing problems. They pretend to know the truth but they deny God's sovereignty of judgment and they're not obedient to God's word. And when do they come? They come in the last times. When's the last times? Well that's simply the time between the incarnation of Christ and his second coming. So we're living in the last times now. So I guess the natural question is what about us false teachers. You might be thinking oh I not you know we've had no issue with that in my church or you know that's this is a concept that's quite unfamiliar. Well what's true to the churches in in uh, that Jude writes to is is true to us where to expect them. And we do find teachers uh today in many aspects who are not acting and living in line with the with the scripture. We see uh teachers who, who set up churches and they and they quickly fade away or they go into some form of new age spiritualism. Uh, Rob Bell is a uh, name that uh, sticks out to me. I used to watch his videos at my old church, this is probably 10, 15 years ago and, he, and he's drifted away from the faith and the heart of the gospel. Sensuality, we see uh, pastors involved in all kinds of sexual perversion and affairs, there was a a famous uh, pastor from a church not too far f- far from here for a few years ago who was caught uh, in an adulterous affair. And following their own godly desires. Well, there's many examples here, but the American Gospel uh, series of movies, if you haven't seen them, uh, gives a great catalogue of these kinds of teachers who have huge healing events. Uh, and it's always the people coming on stage, getting the healing where you actually can't really tell what the illness is. Uh, Those that are in wheelchairs who have a visible uh, sign of illness, they're left up the back. Um, You know, there's there's something going wrong there, isn't there? So as I said, we need to make ourselves aware. We need to be listening to what preachers say. We need to be studying the Scriptures because these teachers will get found out by their fruit. We need to be careful about who we're watching on YouTube, what podcasts we're listening to of different speakers and teachers. There's many mainstream teachers out there on YouTube that are getting millions and millions of views every week that are not teaching the gospel. And if you're unsure, speak to someone that you trust. The elders would be happy to uh, look at a particular person if you uh, had some questions about what they were teaching. And be particularly concerned about new doctrine. As Dr. Stephen Lawson says, new truth is old heresy. We need to be holding the sword. This is where the sword comes in. Aware of those who seek to come in and harm the church. Ready with the sword of of the Spirit, which we know is the Word of God. And we don't neglect sound doctrine. Just yesterday, it was a perfect perfect example actually for for tonight. I had a Jehovah's Witness uh, come to my door. Um, Lovely bloke, lived in the area, um, got talking. He, He was sort of in a rush. I didn't really get to have a long discussion with him. But he calls himself, obviously, a believer. He says that he, you know, believes in what the Bible says. But, obviously, the, the one big, um, fa- you know, foundational aspect of Scripture and doctrine that he doesn't believe in is the deity of Christ. And, obviously, w- without believing in uh, Christ as God, he's not saved. So, uh, doctrine is very, very important and we need to be clear on it, we need to understand it, uh, we need to be searching the Scriptures Um, to better understand it. So we contend for the faith by remembering the opponents of the faith. So after those sections, verses 17 to 19, Jude shifts gear. And as one, one commentator says, we're grabbed by the collar in this section. Jude ensures that we hear him loud and clear. He says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. The second way we contend for the faith is to build ourselves up in the faith. We build ourselves up in the faith. Here's the trowel. This is the building. A commentator says that Jude, in these verses, I love this, he says he's building the architect of the Christian soul. He's the architect of the Christian soul. So what's the holy faith we're building ourselves up in? Well, it's obviously the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 3 says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Where I work at uh, Water New South Wales, uh, I'm not sure how many people know, but we've just celebrated 100 years of the Greater Sydney Catchment. Now, for those who aren't aware, the Greater Sydney Catchment is a series of uh, dams, obviously Warragamba being being the biggest, uh, canals, weirs, tunnels... Huge structures. Now, these were built, uh, over a hundred years ago. It was a, it was a huge process when engineering standards were nowhere near what they are now. But it's an, it's an incredible thing. And the water that you drink when you go home every night has come from this, stru- come from these, these structures that were built, you know, over a hundred years ago. Water that is captured down near Goulburn, down near the Southern Highlands and travels all its way up to Prospect, where it's then pumped uh, to your house and to your tap. It's pretty amazing. And we need to be thankful that our forefathers in Sydney were builders, that they built, that they got to work. And in the same way as believers, we need to build our faith. Mockers and scoffers, opponents of the faith, come in and try and divide God's Word. But believers, empowered by God's Spirit, build up their faith. See, the Christian life is not being saved knowing that you're justified by the blood of Christ, and then putting up your feet. We continue. We build on our faith. There's work to do. And I know the elders at the church, when we meet, we're always praying through the list of the the directory, the congregation, because we want to see people built up in faith. And this is not building a works righteousness. This is not building our way to God. I'm not saying that at all. We're not earning our way to God's favour. So how do we build? Well, within this point we get three tools about how to build the first tool that jude utilizes to us to use is to pray in the holy spirit pray in the holy spirit now this is no gift of tongues this is not talking about praying in tongues it simply means that we pray in the harmony with the holy spirit we pray in harmony with the holy spirit Ephesians 6 says, we pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep praying for the Lord's people. So practically, we may need to make an effort to pray God's Word back to Him. Spurgeon puts it like this, and I I just love this, I think this is a perfect description. A seed of acceptable devotion must come from heaven's storehouse. Only the prayer which comes from God can go to God. We must shoot... The Lord's arrows back at him. We must shoot the Lord's arrows back at him. For example, you're reading your scripture and you're praying for someone, say, in your family who's lost, who doesn't know the Lord. You can pray over a text like this, "...the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, Does some understand slowness. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance." When I wake up every morning for my morning devotion, I pray from Psalm 5. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. To you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. I'll tell you what, when I wake up 5.30 or 6 o'clock wherever it is in the morning and I'm, I'm very tired, I want to go back to bed. I'm so thankful that I can use God's word to pray. I'm not able to pray in my own strength. Uh, it's, it's very useful. We had also to persevere in prayer. We covet the time and the day where we we pray. Missionary Hudson Taylor, the British missionary to China, said the hardest part of his missionary career was to find regular time in prayer. I'll read this account. Those travelling with him, month after month, in northern China, remember his practice. This is talking about Hudson Taylor. Often, with only one large room for sleeping... They would screen off a corner for him and another for themselves with curtains of some sort. And then, after sleep at last had brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and they would see the flicker of candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in the two volumes that he always had at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he gave to prayer, the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed before God." So how's your time in prayer? I'm sure there's not one of us here that don't struggle to find good time in prayer. Are you shooting those arrows heavenward back at God? As we heard as Scott told us during the announcements, we've got a time of prayer coming up for our senior past uh, pastoral uh, search process. Maybe you need to add yourself to the list at the back of the church if you haven't done that so far. You can maybe join me in the early mornings of the night between 2 and 5 when it's most quiet. You can be your own Hudson Taylor under the candlelight or iPhone light. We pray in the Holy Spirit. The second tool that we use to build ourselves up is to keep ourselves in God's love. And what does this mean to keep? Well, in John 15, Jesus says, if you keep my commands, you remain in my love just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So how do we keep ourselves in God's love? Quite simple. We stay in God's word. We follow God's word. And we also read the Bible because it keeps us accountable. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And as the evangelist Ray Comfort says, you read the Bible and it reads you. I'll say that again. You read the Bible and it reads you. So again, this goes to our daily time in the Word. And when we are reading the Word, are we are we just browsing over it? God's Word, which has been given to us, is not like a newspaper or a tweet. We need to be deep in the Word. We need to be meditating, writing notes, analyzing what it said. I always say to people, I don't understand people who don't have a study Bible. They're so fantastic, they've got a commentary right there. You can read through the scripture and any question you have, you'll have the notes in every verse that will explain it. Um, and I'm happy to uh, recommend any uh, if you'd like to get one. Donald Whitney says, No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's Word. We build ourselves by keeping ourselves in God's love. The last tool we're given in, in building is to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ as He brings us to eternal life. So this is, I'm going to use a theological word here, eschatological. I mean, it's looking forward to our resurrection life when Jesus comes. What's the mercy? Well, it's simply the grace of God that we get at the cross. Titus 2 verse 13 says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. I was recently, as I said, uh, over in, uh, London and did some traveling all around Europe. I was with my uh, father and my brother-in-law, and we had a great time doing what men do on holidays like that—doing things at a million miles an hour, and uh, seeing historical things, and sports things, and eating bad food, and all those things that you do on holiday. And it was—it was a great time. I had a fantastic time on the trip, but I—sorry—I missed my family. I really missed my family. I missed my my kids. I missed my wife. It was a really tough time, um, but. So, as I said, I had a great time, I had a great trip, but I was looking forward to being back with them, to being with my family. So, we wait for the blessed hope that we have in Christ. And in the same way, we as believers wait with this hope, knowing our hope was secured on the cross, that Christ has the victory. This is what the Reformers refer to as perseverance of the saints or eternal security. He will hold me fast. Those great words in John 10, which I love Pastor Ian always used to quote these, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So for us having this assurance that our hope is secured at the cross gives us great benefit in our life. For that young man who loses his job, loses his income, he can focus on his heavenly treasure. The older lady who's dealing with a terminal diagnosis, she can say, it is well, I have an everlasting covenant. And for the young lady dealing with anxiety, she can sleep with the words of the psalmist, knowing in peace I'll lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. The hope we have through the cross and an empty tomb. We're not waiting for condemnation, but for the mercy of Christ, the hope of the world. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So we see building ourselves up in the faith. Three tools we've got praying in the Spirit, keeping ourselves in God's love, and waiting for God's mercy. Last section, uh, verses 22 and 23. We contend for the faith in terms of reaching out for those who have left the faith. We contend for the faith by reaching out to those who have left the faith. This is talking about evangelism. And of course, aware of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So I'll read 22 and 23 here. Be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So Jude, what's Jude doing here? He's giving us detailed instructions about how we reach out to different people in different circumstances. Like a good fisherman who knows how to use different baits and different lures and different rods, depending on what he's fishing for, we have to use different strategies. And that's what Jude's explaining here. There's three groups. And a commentator says the three kinds of patients require three different kinds of medical treatment. So let's have a look through the three groups. And as I said, this is focused on evangelism. The first group is verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Who are those who are adou- who doubt? It's simply those who are unsure about Christianity, who are doubting. They're not saved, they may be showing some kind of interest. You can think of the, the bloke that comes to the service every so often, sits up the back and leaves quietly. The young girl at youth group who comes along and we can see that she has a good time but she's really got no interest in in reading the bible or anything of faith but she still ke- keeps coming along or the new arrival to australia who's part of our esl uh ministry and and comes along um but obviously does not have a faith so these people you know who who, who are, are unsure who are, are not saved or, or maybe have a bit of an interest in christianity but have not expressed a faith in christianity and jude says we're to treat them with mercy to be compassionate to be loving 1 Peter 3 says we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. We have to realise that often these people who are coming to our church, who are inquiring, are open, but being open is not a good thing. As John MacArthur says, anyone who's open to the truth is also open to error. You want to get that thing closed as quickly as you can. So it's a good thing that we're having interaction with these people but at the same time we want to lead them to the truth. Obviously that's God's work but we can um, be tools at his service. So this might mean sitting down with someone for coffee and answering questions that they have about the Bible. Maybe including them in a group outing, uh, perhaps with a, you know, I'd suggest a majority of Christian friends and of course prayer. We have a key role as Christian men and Christian women, with those who doubt. So we have mercy on those who doubt. Our second group is that we, it says, we save others by snatching them from the fire. Now, we don't get too much information on who this is talking about, but commentators suggest it's probably someone who's in false teaching, hearing heresy, or maybe someone who's wandered from the faith and is in sin. Maybe they're at a church that don't, don't teach the gospel. Or as I said, maybe they're involved with some kind of adultery, sexual perversion, um, and they're not repentant. Commentator David Helm calls work with this group, restorative evangelism. And we know in James 5 that we're commanded, it says, My brothers and sisters, if any of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins." So this is snatching from the fire. How will this look like practically? Well, it might mean for the young bloke who's, who's got a a friend in this situation going to pick them up from King's Cross, King's Cross one night. It could be a young mum journeying with another young mum who's involved with some form of cult. Or it could be prayer for a parent who was a Christian but has turned to the new age because we're called to snatch from the fire. They're in the fire. They're outside of Christ. C.T. Studd, well-known missionary but also an Ashes cricketer, played for England, his name's on the Ashes Trophy and he was a missionary, died in Africa eventually. Famous quote from him, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. We rescue those from the fire. And then our last group of evangelism, It says, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This group is very similar to the second. They're uh, obviously not walking with the Lord. We're again called to show mercy, but we're given a warning. We're given a warning about being drawn down with these people into the sin that they're engaged with. Obviously, they're in a sin that involves danger for us when we reach out to them. Now, of course, they need mercy. We've been shown mercy, which we didn't deserve. But we need to ensure that when we're reaching out to this group, that we don't participate in their sin or got dragged into it. So they're obviously involved in a sin or an activity that's going to um, cause us trouble. Scripture says, this is 2 Corinthians 7, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So we're not to be contaminated in the process of evangelism. And that, that sounds like strong language, contaminated, doesn't it? But what does Jude use? He says, we don't want to be stained by corrupted flesh. It's a vivid metaphor, but I have to use it. If we're walking down the street outside and you saw a soiled garment, would you want to pick that up and hold it? No. And, and, and this is the warning that we get here from Jude. Just to give you a a practical illustration, I was involved with a red light district uh, ministry when I was in Cambodia uh, over over 10 years ago uh, where we'd reach out to men on the street. Um, And I'll tell you what now, not really with having this text in mind, there were some people involved in that ministry who really should not have been out in the street. They shouldn't have been near bars. They shouldn't have been near um, women who were doing certain things. It was a dangerous position because of their own history because um, of the tendencies that they had. So we need to be very careful, we need to be aware of the atmosphere and the environment that we're in and we need to ask for God's wisdom and ask for Godly counsel to help us. One clear way I always say when we do evangelism up at the Metro is that we don't do evangelism with the opposite gender, it just causes all kinds of problems Um, and, and so the The advice I'd always give is, if you're going to reach out to someone, reach out to someone. If you're a guy, reach out to a guy. If you're a a woman, reach out to a woman. That's that's the safest way. And of course we do evangelism knowing that God is in control. We're just tools at His service. I'll quote him again because I love him. In Spurgeon's classic Soul Winner book on evangelism, he says, Young men and old, as sisters of all ages, if you love the Lord, get a passion for souls. Do you not see them? They're going to hell by the thousands. We snatch them from the fire. So, in conclusion, we don't stay passive in this Christian life. There is work to be done. We need to remember the opponents of the faith. We need to build ourselves up in the faith. We need to reach out to those who have left the faith. How are you doing with all of these things? Are you fighting with the sword? Are you building yourself up with the trowel? Are you snatching the lost from the fire for God's glory? Do you have a wartime mentality like those people on the streets of London in World War II? It was John Piper's classic sermon, Don't Waste Your Life, which I think was probably one of the most iconic sermons of the last 30 years, also known as the Seashell Sermon, delivered on the 20th of May 2000 in Memphis, Tennessee. He says these words, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in this world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. We need to be mastered by a few great things. The man or woman who pursues true biblical teaching, build themselves up in word and prayer, partakes in evangelism, what things these are to live for. And we do this only in the strength of Christ, We look forward to verse 25 in Jude. It says, we do it all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do nothing without His strength. We are tools to serve by His strength alone. Now, if you're here uh, this evening or you're watching online and you don't know God's grace, you don't know the mercy that I spoke about before, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, please talk to someone about it. We want you to know the living God. We want you in right relationship with Christ. We want you to know the blessed assurance that's only found in Christ, His mercy. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, You, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And for us believers, may we be mastered by these things, knowing that our time is short and we need to contend for the faith while we're here. Fight with the sword, build with the trowel and save those from the fire. May that be our witness.